Schlock Audio Tales. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green scaly fabric, soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, non-slip grips on soles, and three white claws on each foot. One size fits most up to women's ten and a half, men's nine. Footbed measures ten and a half. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads a story, either a chapter of a novel or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. Look for our podcast near the old wishing well in the Blasted Heath, wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and at Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube. Welcome to Black Clock Audio Tales. Check out our new website over at www.pgttcm.com. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. The Chamber, Oppressive Gloom, Despair. Welcome to Part 1, Folklore of Great Britain. Join us at the end of the month when we talk about the Great Old Ones. Chapter 12 of Welsh Fairy Tales Recording by James Lapine Welsh Fairy Tales by William Elliot Griffiths Chapter 12 Giant Tom and Giant Blub Everybody who has anything of Welsh history, though not the sort that is written by English folks, know that Cornwall is the soul, a part of Wales, before the Romans first, and the Saxons next invaded Britain. The comic people lived all over the island, south of Scotland. They were the British people, and nobody ever heard the German name Wales, which means a foreign land, or the word Welsh, which refers to foreigners, until the men who were themselves outsiders came into Britain. Since that time, it has been much the same as when a British Jack Tar, when rambling in Portugal or China, calls the natives foreigners and tells them to get out of the way. Ages ago when the comic men with their wives and little ones rolled over in their coracles from Galladay or the Summerland to Britain, the Honeyland, they came first to the promontory which we know as Cornwall, that is Cornu Galilei or Wallalei, which means horn or cape of the new country now called England. Here was a new region, rich in every kind of minerals. Ages before the Phoenicians had named it Britain, or the land of tin, within the memory of men now living, Cornishmen, that is, the miners of Cornwall, on going to California, discovered gold. In Cornwall, as part of the Comric realm, King Arthur found and married Guinevere, his queen. It was in Cornwall also that Merlin was hidden. Hear the rhyme. Marvelous Merlin is wasted away by a wicked woman who she may be. For she hath pent him in a crag on Cornwall coast. So it happened that thousands of English people in Cornwall are Welsh by both name or descent 
or having translated their name into English form, even while keeping the Welsh meaning. There are also Welsh in the traits of character. For just as tens of thousands of Welsh folks among the first settlers of New England and the American colonies are described in our history as English people. Now in early Cornwall there were many giants. Some were good, but others were bad. One of these, a fine fellow, was named Tom, and the other, a bad one, Blub. This giant had twenty wives, and was awfully cruel. Nobody ever knew what became of the twenty maidens he had married. Sometimes people called the big fellow that lived in the castle Giant Blunderbuss, but Blub was his name for short. He was much taller than the highest hop pole in Kent. He was made up mostly of head and stomach, for his chief idea in living was to eat. His skull was as big as a hogshead, or a pushball, or a market wagon loaded with carrots. Indeed, it was strongly suspected by most people that the big bone box set on his shoulders was as hollow as the inside of a pumpkin, but that a coconut would hold all the brains he had. At any rate, during one of his fights with another giant, he had been given an awful thwack from the other giant's club. Then the sound made, which was heard a long distance away, was exactly like that when one pounds on an empty barrel. Now this giant blub had a miny castle between a big hill and a river. Under it there were vaults of vast size, filled with treasures of all sorts, gold, silver, jewels, and gems. There were cells in which he kept his wives after he married them. It was the opinion of his neighbors that in every case, soon after the honeymoon was over, he ate them up. Yet, even if the devil ought to have his due, one should be fair to this human monster. And we are bound to say that Giant Blub denied these stories as pure gossip. It is certain that such crimes as murder and cannibalism never could be proved against him. To guard his underground treasures, he had two huge and fierce dogs, supposed to be named Ketchum and Terum. What they were really called by their master was a secret, yet anybody who had a piece of meat ready to throw them and knew their names, which were passwords, could first quiet them. Then he could walk by and get the treasure. Besides these dogs, the only living thing left in the castle when the giant went out was the latest Mrs. Blub. Yet she was in constant fear of her life, like her big husband should sometime make a meal of her. For even she had heard the story that Blub was a cannibal, and looked at all the plump women simply as delicacies, exactly as a boy peers into the window of a candy shop. What made all the country round hate this cruel giant was not wholly on account of his awful appetite. It was because he had ruined the king's high road. Ever since the time of King Lud, whose name we read in Ludgate Hill in London, where his comic majesty had lived, this highway had been free to all. It ran all the way through Cornwall, from Penzance, and thence eastward to London and beyond. When Giant Blub wished to enlarge his castle, he had the walls and towers built down to the river's edge. This closed up the big road so that people had to go far around and up over the hill or by boat along the river. 
Such a roundabout way took much time and toil, and was too much trouble for all. Everybody had to submit to this extortion, until there came along Giant Tom, of whom we shall now tell. His real name was Rolling Stone, for he never stuck long in one place at one job, and he cared not a cucumber for money or for fine clothes. This jolly fellow was very good-natured and popular, but often very lazy. His mother talked with him many times, urging him to learn a trade, or in some way make an honest living. She found it very hard to keep anything in her larder, barn, pantry, or cellar, when he was home. He measured four feet across at his shoulders, and at every meal he ate what could feed three big men. But as he could do six men's work, when he had the mind to, as he often did, he was always welcome. In fact, he was too popular for his own good. One day, when ten common fellows were trying their utmost to lift a big, long log on a cart, they were unable to do it. Tom came along and told them to stand back. Then he hoisted the tree up onto the wain and roped it into place, and told the cartman to drive on. Then they all cheered him, and one of them lifted his Monmouth cap and cried out, Hurrah for Giant Tom! He is the fellow to whip Giant Blub! He is, he is, they all cried in chorus. Who is this Giant Blub? Where does he live? asked Tom, rolling up his sleeves, for he was just spoiling for a row with a fellow of his size. Then they told the story of how the big bully had ruined the king's highway by building a great wall and tower across the road to shut it up to the grief of many honest men. Never mind, boys, I'll attend to his bacon, said Tom. Leave the matter with me, and don't bother to tell the king about it. Tom went the next day into town, and hired himself out as a beer brewer to drive the wagon. Perhaps he hoped, also while in this occupation, to keep down his thirst. He asked the boss to give him the route that led past Giant Blub's castle, over the old king's highway. The master of the brewery saw through Tom's purpose. He winked and only said, Go ahead, my boy. I'll pay you double wages if you will open that road again. But see that giant blub does not get a load of my kegs, or that your carcass doesn't count with those of the twenty wives in his vaults, and make twenty-one. Again he winked his eye knowingly to his workmen. Tom drove off. He occupied all the room on the seat of the cart, which two men usually filled, and left plenty of room on either side. Cracking his whip, the new driver kept the four horses on a galloping pace, until very soon he called out, Whoa! before the frowning high gateway of giant blub. Tom shouted from the depths of his lungs, Open the gate and let me drive through. This is the king's highway. The only reply for a minute was the barking of the curs. Then the rattling of bolts was heard, and the great gates swung wide open. Who are you, you imprudent fellow? Go around over the hill, or I'll thrash you, blustered the giant blub in a rage. Better save your breath to cool your porridge, you big boaster, and come out and fight, said Tom. Fight, you pygmy? I'll get a switch, and whip you as I would a bad boy. 
Thereupon Giant Blub stepped aside into the grove nearby, keeping all the while an eye on his gate, guarded by his two monstrous dogs. He selected an elm tree twenty feet high, tore it up by the roots, pulled off the branches, and peeled it for a whip. This he jerked up and down to make ready for his task of thrashing the pygmy. Meanwhile, Giant Tom upset the wain, drew out the tongue, and took off one of the wheels. Then, as if armed with a spear and shield, he advanced to meet Giant Blub. He whistled like a boy as he went forward. In a passion of rage, Giant Blub lifted his elm switch to strike, but Tom awarded off the blow with his wheel shield. Then he punched him in the stomach with the wagon tongue so hard that the big fellow slipped and rolled over in the mud. Picking himself up, Giant Blub, now half-blind with rage, rushed against Tom, who this time made a lunge which planted the cart tongue inside Blub's bowels and knocked him over. But Tom was not a cruel fellow and had no desire to kill anyone, so he threw down his war tools tearing up a yard or two of grassy sod, rolled it together to make a plug of it, as big and round as a milk churn. With this, he stopped up the big hole in Giant Blub's huge body. But instead of thanking Tom, Giant Blub rushed at him again. He was in too much of a rage to see anything clearly. While Tom, perfectly cool, gave the angry monster such a kick, in the place where he kept his dinner, that he rolled over, and Tom gave him another kick, and then the plug of sod fell out of his wound. As he was bleeding to death, Giant Blub beckoned to Tom to come up close, for he could only whisper, You've beaten me on the square, and I like you. Don't think I killed my twenty wives. They all died naturally. But call the dogs by name, and they will let you pass. Then in my vaults you'll find gold, silver, and copper. Make these your own, and bury me decently. This is all I ask. Tom made himself the owner of the castle, and all its treasures. He opened the king's highway again. He took care of his aged mother, married the twenty-first wife of the giant Blub, now a widow, and was always kind to the sick and poor. To this day in Cornwall, they still tell stories of the big fellow who abolished giant Blub's tollgate. Centuries afterwards, when Christ's gospel came into the land, they restored Giant Tom's tomb, and on it were chiseled these words, The Restorer of Paths to Dwell in. Chapter 13 Recording by James Lapine Walsh Fairy Tales by William Elliot Griffiths Chapter 13 A Boy That Visited Fairyland Many are the places in Wales where the ground is lumpy and humpy with tumuli, or little artificial mounds. Among these the sheep graze, the donkeys bray, and the cows chew the cud. Here the ground is strewn with the ruins of cromlechs, or karmic strongholds, of old Roman camps, of chapels, and monasteries showing that different races of men have come and gone, while the birds still fly and the flowers bloom. Centuries ago, the good monks of St. David had a school where lads were taught Latin and good manners. One of their pupils was a boy named Eladir. 
He was such a poor scholar, and he so hated books and loved to play, that in his case spankings and whippings were almost a daily occurrence. Still he made no improvement. He was in the habit also of playing truant, or what one of the monks called traveling to Baghdad. One of the consequences was that certain soft parts of his body, apparently provided by nature for this express purpose, often received a warming from his daddy. His mother loved her boy dearly, and she often gently chided him, but he would not listen to her, and when she urged him to be more diligent, he ran out of the room. The monks did not spare the birch rod, and soon it was a case of a whipping for every lesson not learned. One day, though he was only twelve years old, the boy started on a long run into the country. The further he got, the happier he felt, at least for one day. At night, tired out, he crept into a cave. When he woke in the morning, he thought it was glorious to be free as a wild asses. So like them, he quenched his thirst at the brook. But when, towards noon, he could find nothing to eat, and his inside cavity seemed to enlarge with very emptiness. His hunger grew every minute. Then he thought of a bit of oak cake, a leek, or a bowl of oatmeal, whether porridge or flummery might suit a king. He dared not go out far and pick berries, for by this time he saw that people were out searching for him. He did not feel yet like going back to books, rods, and scoldings, but the day seemed long as a week. Meanwhile, he discovered that he had a stomach, which seemed to grow more and more into an aching void. He was glad when the sunset and darkness came. His bed was no softer in the cave, as he lay down with a stone for his pillow. Yet he had no dreams like those of Jacob and the angels. When daylight came, the question in his mind was still whether to stay and starve, or go home and get two thrashings one from his daddy, and another from the monks. But how about the thing inside him, which seemed to be a live creature gnawing away, and which only something to eat would quiet? Finally he came to a stern resolve. He started out, ready to face two whippings, rather than one death by starvation. But he did not have to go home yet, for at the cave's mouth he met two elves, who delivered a most welcome message. Come with us to the land full of fun, play, and good things to eat. All at once his hunger left him, and he forgot that he ever wanted to swallow anything. All fear or desire to go home, or to risk either schooling or a thrashing, passed away also. Into a dark passage all three went, but they soon came out into a beautiful country. How the birds sang and the flowers bloomed. All around could be heard the joyful shouts of little folks at play. Never did things look so lovely. Soon, in front of the broad path along which they were traveling, there rose up before him a glorious palace. It was a splendid gateway, and the silver top towers seemed to touch the blue sky. What building is this? asked the lad of his two guides. They made an answer that it was the palace of the king of fairyland. Then they led them into the throne room, where sat in golden splendor a king of august figure and of majestic presence, who was clad in resplendent robes. He was surrounded by courtiers in rich apparel, and all about him was magnificence, such as this boy 
Elidir had never read or dreamed about. Yet everything was so small that it looked like Toyland, and he felt like a giant among them, even though many of the little men around him were old enough to have whiskers on their cheeks and beards on their chins. The king spoke kindly to Elidir, asking him who he was and whence he had come. While talking thus, the prince, the king's only son, appeared. He was dressed in white, velvet, and gold, and had a long feather in his cap. In a pleasantest way, he took Elidir's hand and said, Glad to see you. Come, let us play together. That was just what Elidir liked to hear. The king smiled and said to his visitor, You will tend my son? Then, with a wave of his hand, he signified the boys to run out and play games. A right merry time they did have, for there were many other little fellows for playmates. These wee folks, with whom Elidir played, were hardly as big as our babes, and certainly would not reach up to his mother's knee. To them he looked like a giant, and he richly enjoyed the fun of having such little men, but with beards growing on their faces, look up to him. They played with golden balls, and rolled little horses with silver saddles and bridles, but these pretty animals were no larger than small dogs or greyhounds. No meat was ever seen on the table, but always plenty of milk. They never told a lie, nor used bad language or swear words. They often talked about mortal men, but usually to despise them, because that's what they liked to do. It seemed so absurd that they always wanted foolish and useless things. To the elves, human beings were never satisfied, or long happy, even when they got what they wanted. Everything in this part of Fairyland was lovely, but it was always cloudy. No sun, star, or moon was ever seen. Yet the little men did not seem to mind, and enjoyed themselves, every day. There was no end of play, and that suited Elidir. Yet by and by he got tired even of games and play and grew very homesick. He wanted to see his mother, so he asked the king to let him to visit his old home. He promised solemnly to come back after a few hours. His majesty gave permission, but charged him not to take with him anything whatever from fairyland, and to go only with the clothes on his back. The same two elves, or dwarves, who had brought him into fairyland were chosen to conduct him back. When they led him again through the underground passage into sunlight, they made him invisible until he arrived at his mother's cottage. She was overjoyed to find that no wolf had torn him to pieces, or wild bull had pushed him over a precipice. She asked him many questions, and he told her all he had seen, felt, or known. When he rose up to go, she begged him to stay longer, but he said he must keep his word. Beside, he feared the rods of the monks or his daddy if he remained. So he made his mother agree not to tell anything, not even to his father as where he was or what he was doing. Then he made off and reported again to his playmates in Fairyland. The king was so pleased at the lad's promptness of returning and keeping his word and telling the truth that he allowed him to go see his mother as often as he wanted to do so. He even gave orders releasing the two little men from constantly guarding him and told them to let the lad go alone, and when he would, for he always kept his word. Many times did Elidir visit his mother, 
By one road or another he made his way, keeping himself invisible all the time, until he got inside her cottage. He ran off when anyone called in to pay a visit, or when he thought his daddy, or one of the monks, was coming. He never saw any of these men. One day in telling his mother of the fun and good times he had in Fairyland, he spoke of the heavy yellow balls with which he and the king's son played, and how these rolled around. Before leaving home, this boy had never seen any gold, and did not know what it was, but his mother guessed that it was precious metal, of which these coins called sovereigns, and worth five dollars apiece were made, so she begged him to bring one of them home to her. This Elidir thought would not be right, but after much argument his parents being poor, and she telling him that out of hundreds in the king's palace, one single ball would not be missed, he decided to please her. So one day, when he supposed no one was looking, he picked up one of the yellow balls and started off through the narrow, dark passageway home. But no sooner when he was back on the earth and in the sunlight again than he heard footsteps behind him. Then he knew that he had been discovered. He glanced over his shoulder, and there were two little men, who had led him first and had formerly been his guards. They scowled at him as though they were mad enough to bite off the heads of ten petty nails. Then they rushed after him, and there began a race to the cottage. The boy had legs twice as long as the little men, and got to the cottage door first. He now thought himself safe, but pushing open the door, he stumbled over the copper threshold, and the ball rolled out of his hand, across the floor of hardened clay, even to the nearly whitewashed border, which ran about the edges of the room. It stopped at the feet of his mother, whose eyes opened wide at the sight of a ball of shining gold. As he laid sprawling on the floor, and before he could pick himself up, one of the little men leaped over him, rushed into the room, and from under his mother's petticoats picked up the ball. They spat at the boy and shouted, Traitor! Rascal! Thief! false mortal, fox, rat, wolf, and other bad names. They turned and sped away. Now Elidir, though he had been a mischievous boy, often willful, lazy, and never liking his books, had always loved the truth. He was very sad and miserable, beyond telling, because he had broken his word of honor. So, almost mad with grief and shame, and from accusing conscience, he went back to find the cave in which he had slept. He would return to the king of fairies and ask his pardon, even if his majesty never allowed him to visit fairyland again. But though he often searched and spent whole days in trying to find the opening in the hills, he could never discover it. So, fully penitent and resolving to live right and become what his father wanted him to be, he went back to the monastery. There he plied his task so diligently that he excelled in all book learning. In time, he became one of the most famous scholars in Welsh history. When he died, he asked to be buried not in the monk's cemetery, but with his father and mother in the churchyard. He made request that no name, record, or epitaph be chiseled on his tomb, but only these words. We can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. End of chapter.